Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This conversation about advice and transparency in the art market was hosted by Dickinson earlier this year during Spring TFAF in New York. In it, you will hear art advisors Megan Fox Kelly and Todd Levin discuss with Dickinson's William O'Reilly the nature of giving advice to clients. I'm moderating the conversation, and with that, let's get to the opening remarks. Welcome to Dick Dickinson. Thank you very much for coming um, on such a, a, a crazy busy week. I think there are four other events going on almost simultaneously this morning. So I think there was a finance, art finance breakfast, there's an art lending talk at 10 o'clock, there's a, another talk at 11. So um, we're very honored that you could come uh, to, to see us uh, this morning. Um, this is the second in a, a series of talks we're doing this year uh, to mark the 25th anniversary of, of Dickinson, or Dickinson Randall in New York, um, which is really designed, uh, Dickinson, as, as, as I hope you know, has been um, uh, working at, the, at the, the top end of the market uh, as a private dealer, um, growing really out of uh, what Simon Dickinson, the old master side, and James Randall in the, in the Impressionist Modern side uh, felt was a, a, an important niche to serve uh, major collectors on, a, on the quieter side. The problem, of course, with working on the quieter side is that not too many people hear about what you're doing. Um, and, and one of the things that we're keenest to emphasize as a, as a private operation is that we are actually incredibly transparent. It's very important for us as a, as a business model to, to, to be transparent in everything that we do. So we arranged this series of talks through the year. There was one in London with James and Emma, um, this one, and then you'll see on the chairs that we're doing another one in uh, London Art Week in June to really talk about um, the market, how we fit into the market, and how uh, other market players can operate um, in, uh, in this fun world. Very lucky to have a great panel. Um, Marion is, is going to, to, to run it um, with a, a rod of iron, which I think you might need. Um, so I'll let Marion start off with, with, the, with, with the program. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. Um, I, I, in a second, I'm going to get into this. And I thought one of the best ways to approach this is just simply from the perspective of uh, collecting. Uh, what a collector wants and needs in terms of advice, guidance, uh, you know, mapping uh, of not just the art world, but also the uh, concept of how art fits as an asset. And I don't only mean that as uh, a financial strategy, but you know, anything that costs a lot of money needs to be thought through and approached in a long-term way rather than just as a, uh, a, a consumer good uh, and all. And so uh, the way that uh, Will sort of organized this panel was how we could talk a bit about uh, advice. And if you uh, want advice, you can go to uh, a dealer, uh, and Will represents uh, that, and it's obvious uh, we're here. You can go to a, an art advisor, and uh, uh, Megan and Todd represent, uh, I think, slightly different approaches to that uh, sort of th thing. Uh, I, I was going to say, say I, I, I might let you define that uh, uh, personally. I know that 
I'll start this for, for Todd, uh, uh, because I think of you, Todd, as, as much a, um, uh, a curator as an advisor in the sense that you've built a number of prominent collections and that people, I presume, come to you because of that uh, experience. Can you just give a little more gloss on uh, uh, how you work with clients? Um, well, every client's really different, to be honest. I, I wish I could say there's sort of a, not a single methodology, but at least a general methodology. But there's really not. I mean, every time a, a potential client comes to you and inquires about the possibility of having a relationship, it takes time just to establish kind of where they are in their collecting arc and what it is they think they're trying to accomplish and whether you think that some of those goals are sensible goals or maybe some of them need to be slightly uh, you know, manipulated a bit and have discussions about that. So it's, it's really not a singularity. So um, everything's a little bit different from case to case. Megan? I would agree. Um, all of my clients are different. Um, a lot of times the clients who come to me to, uh, to collect are just beginning a collection. Um, so trying to help them define what their goals are and getting them to understand how the market works is the you know, first, you know, it's sort of the front loading of the education process with them. Um, I think my, my practice is like you know, three legs of a stool. So I work with collectors to help them to build their collections. Um, I work with collector estates, and I've sold a number of prominent estates to very large ones um, just last year. And there I'm working with the heirs, with family offices, with attorneys, helping them to strategize you know, what we're going to do with this collection, selling it privately and at auction, and um, you know, in order to fulfill their will and you know, sort of maximize, maximize the value. Then the third leg of the stool is working with artists' estates and foundations, which is a little unusual, but a very big part of my practice. Um, and so I work, I've worked with you know, Rauschenberg, Mike Kelly, Twombly, uh, Joan Mitchell, and a lot of other you know, smaller artist foundations, helping them and their boards to understand the marketplace, because it's not, it's not the thing they do, really, um, and helping them to strategize how they can marry the legacy of the artist with, uh, with the marketplace, because defending and building the market for an artist uh, who's deceased is part of their legacy building. Do you want to talk for a second about advising people, or do you want me to sort of switch into uh, uh, my little bit of storytelling here? Well, no, but I, I think it's, it's important uh, from, from a, a dealer's point of view to, to, to think about advising as well, because obviously a lot of what what we do is, is advising. We work with collectors. Um, but I, mean, I think that touches on, on so many elements of, of what we were, were, were talking about. My background was as an auctioneer, so I've, I've come out of the auction world, um, which used to be sort of essentially wholesale, and you'd sell to a dealer, and the dealer would then gussy something up and sell it on to a collector. Now everyone has to do a little bit of everything. But um, a huge amount of, of what, what we do here, what we have to do in here, and, and the things like the, the TEFA Fair that we're exhibiting at at the moment, is, is really based on the consigner. Uh, and we get paid by the consigner. Uh, it's, I think it's something we're going to touch on in a minute in terms of, of, of transparency and alignment of interests. Um, that it's... it's a, a, a lot of us, I know James does, Emma and, and, and Lily and the team... Um, it's, it starts with the object in a way, 
um, uh, and a lot of dealers, I think, are frustrated collectors, um, that it starts with the object, it starts with the owner of the object that you then bring to try and find um, people to buy, which is a rather different approach, perhaps, to, to the advisory model, which has, has really grown in the last, certainly in the last 20 years, but particularly the last 25 years. So I, I have a secret that um, I need to tell you about. Uh, I was a very early buyer of a, a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, and, and a couple of months ago, I couldn't stand it, and I sold it all. Uh, and it, it, it's just a, an unbelievable vast fortune. Uh, and I, I, I bought a summer house. I uh, uh, bought a, a couple of nice boats. I, you know, I, I've got a few suits on order. Uh, but I still have a ton of money. I don't know what to, to do it. So I'd like to you know, start collecting. Uh, and I thought I'd ask uh, uh, the three of you a little bit of advice on how to go about uh, all of this. <laughs> Uh, and I, I know vaguely what I'm interested in uh, in terms of uh, art. I mean, I know what I like. Uh, and I you know, understand that there's a lot of stuff out there that's kind of uh, pricey. Uh, so I, I just wanted to sort of start, how do I uh, attack the, this? Do I you know, go to the auction houses and um, you know, uh, ask for some advice on uh, what's being sold uh, this week and really sort of get in there and start bidding and uh, let everyone know that I'm in the market? Market. Todd? <laughs> the first thing I would do is sign up for Marion Manneker's art market monitor <laughs> to, uh, to uh, you know, know what's hot and what's not, and uh, basically just, you know, follow it like the Bible. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I've found, at least in my, you know, whatever it's now, 35, 40 years being involved in the art market, um, there's sort of two basic modalities when somebody wants to really begin to collect seriously. There's sort of a, uh, 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 an educational modality, which is about connoisseurship and um, you know, having a better understanding of what your opinions and tastes are and, and why they are what they are. Because it's not enough to say, you know, I, I like that. Uh, a painting there, and so I'd, I'd like to buy it. The question is, is why do you like the painting? Is it because it's going to match the decor in your home? Is it because you know who the artist is and you have a better understanding of Albers and you know Black Mountain School? Is it because you know? But you know, opinions are are everybody has opinions. The question is, are they informed opinions, or are they uninformed opinions? And the job really is as as. I think Megan was talking about front-loading the education, is the educational modality of not only having opinions, but is about having informed opinions. If I find that if somebody has taken a requisite amount of time to not only you know, know what they want to buy, but understand why they might want to buy those things, then when they're standing in front of the artwork, um, they feel more confident. And that confidence eventually will breed the transactions. But transactions don't necessarily breed education and confidence. It doesn't go both ways. So um, uh, in fact, it can be uh, quite the opposite. People can get burned uh, if they engage in off the bat in transactions and um, haven't taken the time to do sort of an inventory um, you know, kind of thing of themselves and, and, and to understand 
what they're doing and why they're doing it and, and to try and gain some, if required, additional education. Um, and that can backfire. They can feel very burned by the experience. They can decide that it's all a sham. They don't want to, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and that's a shame because there are, you know, many people out there who have had the financial means to potentially do really amazing things uh, in terms of collection building, but for one reason or another, they kind of got led down the wrong path or something happened, and, and then they, 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 they sort of, they're done. And that's, that's sad when that happens. To define, uh, or maybe let me switch this to, to Megan. Uh, uh, define burned for me. Is it um, buying something and discovering later that uh, someone else, I, w I was in a booth yesterday, and an art advisor asked what uh, uh, a, a work on, was on offer for, and said, oh, great. If you sell it, tell me, because I just uh, placed this with a client for much less, and they'll be so excited to know <laughs> that you're selling the same works for yeah, you know, X plus uh, of this. I mean, and, and this is, you know, the part of this whole, I don't even think it's, we can talk about it in terms of uh, a financial strategy. You know, you, you don't want your house to get uh, cheaper. And if you buy a house on the, a block and a little later, one down the block sells for a lot more, hey, that's always feels your, great. Your and, new summer house that you Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> With the Bitcoins. Thing. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nantucket, the, the real estate just keeps going up. And it'll only go up. Forever. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, give me a sense of what's burned for a client, that the hearing that it's no longer worth what they, they paid, or is it the sense that they might have missed out on, on something? I think it's both of those things. I, I think being, you know, getting burned can be a lot of things, that they, you know, they didn't buy something that was of the level of quality that they were told or that they understood or believed it to be, um, that they overpaid. Um, uh, that they thought they were getting some, you know, exclusive opportunity, and it wasn't at all. You know, there's so many different levels of dis of disappointment, and I, I wanted to add to what um, Todd said because I think in terms of working with our clients, we work, you know, at least in the beginning, in a very similar way. That you know, you you're, you need to take an inventory of the client and say, you know, what, you know, what is it that you want to accomplish? And I think that would be my first question back to you, you know, because you did you, you, the suits are on order, uh, they're on their way, the boats. I want I want a collection <laughs> that everyone will envy. I want people to come to my apartment because I also bought an apartment in Manhattan uh, uh, in a nice new building in Ch Chelsea with a lot of wall space, and I want people to come in and see that I am smart with it and have great taste. Uh, and uh, so the question is, am I too late to buy Richard Prince? Or should I be buying George Kondo? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not really joking about this. I mean, we see a lot of collections where it's a, a lot of great artists, but also the same artists. And uh, uh, is that the, um, and I think this is client specific, but is, is that, the client getting what they wanted or the client needing to be sort of uh, pushed a little further? I think it's the client needing to be pushed a little further. I think, you know, when you come in in, in the position that you were, you know, a little bit informed but not, not fully informed, you think you do know what you want. You want, you want a collection that people are going to envy. You want the great, you know, dinner party or whatever party you're going to throw and you want to look as, you know, someone who's informed and, you know, has great taste. I think as you get deeper in the process of learning, if you will take the time to work with a Todd or myself or anybody else in the APAA, that um, you start to hopefully fall in love a little bit. And that uh, the desire for impressing other people be and doing the right thing becomes supplanted with 
you know, the desire for the object. Um, and so just a quick story that yesterday I walked around the Tefa Fair, which is so beautiful, with a friend. And I think we weren't into the third or maybe fourth booth where I realized I'd completely lost him. Um, he's not, not my client. He really is a friend. And he was, you know, standing in front of an object and, and talking about it. And I knew he loved it. You know, he was just so we went on, you know, continued through the fair. We would look at another work of art. And he would be talking about that work of art. But then after a while, I realized, no, he's actually talking about that first thing that we saw that he, I knew by the, the end of the first aisle that he was a goner. Now, I don't know if he's going to, you know, buy that thing. But this is the kind of collector who builds a collection slowly with care, with with research that I envy, you know, the way that he goes about, you know, digging into a piece and getting to know the dealers and the pieces. And if he buys this thing, he's going to, you know, do that. But it's, you know, passion is the thing that drives his entire collection. And it's a beautiful collection because of it. But I, and I think that's, that is the, is the answer to your question. I, it's, it's the old sore and it's the, the, the thing that, that, that you always hear people saying, but it's no less true for that is that you have to, to identify the thing that you're really going to love. It's, it's all very well having another Richard Prince or another Adrian Genie or whatever it is. You're not really going to be able to talk about it if you just bought it because you were told it was, it was fun and sexy. If, you, if you've taken the time to get to know Albers, say, or if you've taken the time to work with, with an advisor or a dealer or an auction house specialist to get to know an artist that you really connect with, then that is, is going to be something that when you get the, the six supermodels back to your pad, they're going to really be three, turned on three, by I'm, your enthusiasm. I'm getting older. Just three. <laughs> he didn't sell that those, much Bitcoin. <laughs> when you get those new suits, it'll be six. This one, uh. so, so yeah. we, can, I'm sorry. Go yeah, well, there's just a couple of things you said I just want to address. First of all, the thing about, it was interesting that you brought up the thing uh, talking about, and the market is very inefficient, but the market inefficiency of, you know, I saw the thing and then maybe they overpaid Tefaf yesterday. As an example, <clears throat> I was looking at a couple of, just out of curiosity, a, a couple of Eve Klein classic blue paintings, about the same size, roughly this size, um, one from 1959, one from 1960, so same period. Um, Condition was fine in both cases. There weren't conservation issues or anything like that. They were both very correct, exactly, basically the same period, same size, same thing. Booth one, 1.2 million ask. Booth two, 2.2 million ask. So the inefficiencies in the market are legion, and that's an issue which is something that does need to be addressed. I just wanted to use that as, as one thing. Uh, you know, uh, to, to, these, to this yeah. other point, I don't really place any sort of moral or ethical uh, judgment on somebody who says, if they come to me and they say, look, I, you know, I really, you know, we bought an, uh, an apartment, you know, with my Bitcoin fortune and at 157 West 57. Oh, and, of course, yeah. and it's a course, and because, uh, uh, and, um, you know, uh, we, I, I do want some things that have that kind of uh, wall power to use, a, a, you know, whatever word I can come up with, you know, that, that, that are current and, and whatever. There's nothing the matter with that insofar as, again, if their opinion is informed and they've come to an informed idea that that's the kind of work that they like, then the job is to go out and access the very best 
my job is to access one of my jobs, the very best examples of that work while continuing to educate the client. Um, and this is to your point about, you know, hopefully with continued education, maybe they can be pushed um, into other areas that can um, somehow, you know, philosophically, aesthetically, visually, whatever, express uh, a deeper or broader sense of what their aesthetic is. Um, and there is nothing worse than going into somebody's house, and this is you know, what I sort of say to kids at Christie's or Sotheby's when I talk there, that if, as an art advisor, if somebody can walk in and see you know, the collection and know who the advisor was. And as I always say, you don't want to leave your fingerprints on the murder weapon um, <laughs> as an advisor. If you're doing that, that, that sort of branding is a bad, I think that that's a bad thing because fundamentally a collection is sort of a Rorschach test of that specific person or couple or collector or whatever the case is. And to go from house to or home to home or collection to collection, more or less see the same artists to a large degree and the same sort of quality of work and it's a bit matchy-matchy, that fundamentally shows a laziness and a kind of worse, a kind of moral sloppiness in terms of what one of the fundamental jobs of what we do should be, which is to, you know, that educational modality that I was discussing at the beginning. So can, can I pick up on the market inefficiency uh, to, to ask? You know, we, we now see a market that has different mechanisms. Uh, there's a lot of third-party guarantees taking place. And, and I, one way I think of approaching this with my newfound fortune is why shouldn't I, uh, you know, through you, because I don't know these uh, uh, people at the auction houses, get access to guaranteeing some good works Then I know that I got in on the ground floor and if someone else buys them, hey, you know, it's just like the art advisor uh, yesterday. Obviously, they're good. And, I, and by the way, I get a little bit of, um, you know, financial return uh, uh, from that. I mean, is that a, a, a good way to collect? It's, it's not a particularly good way to collect. It's a very clever way to, to, to spend money. Um, it's, a, it's a very quick way to make a, a, a good return. And if you're a collector and you know the object, then, then it's a win-win, essentially. Um, it's, it's funny that the whole um, irrevocable bid story has, um, I, I think as, as, as the investor, the person putting up the money, you're the only person it really has an advantage to. Um, if you're the vendor, then it, it suggests that the auction house doesn't have confidence that they can sell it well, because you're going to lose a slice of the upside. If you're the future buyer, you're always sort of feeling that um, someone else has taken advantage. If you're an underbidder, you know that the person, if you're an underbidder to the irrevocable bidder, you know that the person who got it is paid less than you would have paid because they've got a, a, a slice out of the, out of the deal. Um, it's, it's, a curious, it's a curious operation. And, and in a way, I think the, the, the growth of, of irrevocable bids has really been um, a justification for, for private dealing because an irrevocable bid really is... Um, it's, it's a private transaction that the, the, the two people in, in the private transaction have said, actually, I think, you know, maybe someone can, could pay more, so let's, let's roll the dice and see if I paid the right price. Megan, you uh, place works the, in, in this fashion. I, uh, 
tell, tell me if I should be playing that game. So, you know, to echo what, what Will said, you know, if you know the object and it's something that you wanted to buy anyway and you don't mind owning that thing, that's not so bad. With a huge caveat, if you end up with that object, it means the bidding only went up to that bid and you're the only one that wanted it. And it is very public that, you know, when it's on your wall, you're that guy, right? <laughs> so, you know, in terms of, you know, investment, what if you want to resell that thing in five, you know, six, seven years? Um, you know, that tra transaction is obviously traceable. Um, is it a way to make money? You know, potentially it is if you don't end up with the thing and the bidding goes beyond it and, and, and sure. But so long as you understand, you know, where the market should be for that object and how deep the bidding should be for that object. Because, you know, remember that the, the, um, the guarantees are all at the very top end of the market. They're in the evening sales. I haven't seen them. Are they in the day sales? No, they're they're pieces. They're, yeah, they are. Here and there. So, um, yeah. you know, they're really about the seller not necessarily having the confidence to place their object into an auction and wanting that guarantee. Pardon? But the seller's advisor in, in, in the auction house, not having the confidence that it's going to sell. And the seller, generally speaking, is, is at the mercy. I mean, we, we talk a lot about, um, about advisors uh, on the, the buying side, but, but I often feel that the, advisors, the, the people selling at auction need an advisor as well. So does that, you know, we hear all this talk about the uh, guarantees inflating prices, but it sounds like uh, the guarantees are actually a moderating influence on prices because they're going to tell a group of bidders that maybe this isn't worth uh, pursuing. You know, the old strategy of setting the estimate as low as possible to bring people in, and then once they're hooked on the bidding, they'll go, yep. uh, you know, further than they uh, expected. You've basically cut that off. I, I mean, there are some people who do some of this trying to measure it. I don't know whether you can truly measure it because uh, there's a, a, a too many variables with it. But it certainly seems like the market is actually more kind of um, uh, restrained or within a band because of, of these private sales in, in public rather than the volatility of anything could happen. It certainly made auctions a lot less exciting. Um, and I mean, speaking as a, as a, as a former auctioneer, um, it's, it, it makes the process, because you know that, that half the things are, are, are going to sell. It, it, it takes out the adrenaline of, of standing up in the rostrum and thinking, geez, what happens if the phone lines go down? Or, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 in a way, it, it, it sort of bankrupts the process, I think. I mean, having said that, the process is pretty odd anyway, but it's... Um, so, so let's uh, uh, flip that around and take it um, uh, from the other side. Uh, you know, we've got all of this stuff that's being, um, you know, set up as a financial uh, a strategy and people are making uh, uh, these guarantees. Uh, and where we see uh, this issue of transparency, and in some ways this is sort of over-transparency uh, because you can see who bought it and for how much and who bought it beforehand, at least the number that has been uh, uh, bought for presumably because of the low estimate. Um, uh, what about <laughs> when we're trying to uh, sell to uh, dealers and people can see the prices that have uh, they've acquired stuff at auction, and someone then goes to the dealer knowing what they bought, 
uh, you know, what, or what something similar was for. What effect does that have on both sides, you as a, a dealer and you as uh, advisors, how you approach that? And, and afterwards, I have a, a funny story to tell from, from yesterday that I think sort of moves this forward. But Todd, you want to you wanna talk about the... Well, I mean, I think that that's <clears throat> what you're... The, the, the kind of paradigm you're talking about has been around a very long time. I mean, in the old master world it's th that I deal in part of the time, it's, it's, it's quite common for dealers to buy pictures at, at auction and then try to reattribute or gussy them up, as, as you would say, clean them, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, you'll see them at markups from anywhere, you know, a TEFF or, you know, I don't know, you know, could be 30, 50, 100% or, or more, uh, you know, and then there's, you know, somebody who buys a thing and then claims it's a Leonardo and it sells for $450 million. So, um, you know, that's hardly kind of a new thing. And in, in, in all but the most extreme cases, it, it's fine that both parties know what the situation is and sort of what was paid. And you sort of do the dance, you know, and you, you come to a point where you can either put your heads together or, or you can't. And so there's no big... I mean, I don't find that to be really, a, you know, a, 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 it, it's, it's very normal and it's, it's, you know. So if you knew that those two Eve Kleins right. were priced that way primarily yeah, well, because of how they were acquired, right. Right, right, that's fine with you as long as you and your client decide which one they want for the, right, the price that's right for them. Well, the only one that's right is the 1.2. I mean, it's not even like a question. Uh, and the one at 1.2 was pretty much priced, I'd say, that's a, a, a fair, it's fair, you know, you would try to negotiate something better, of course, but it's, it's, it's within the general, you know, zone of being reasonable. The other one is just, I don't know what they're thinking. I, I mean, I do know what they're thinking. I'm not going to go into that, but I mean, it's just, you know, I mean. It's a family occasion. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, that's just, that's just, you know, silly. And, and, and if they had taken a moment to walk around the fair, which any, you know, gallerist normally does it a smaller fair. I mean, it's harder to do it at Basel or, a, you know, something like that. But this is 90 booths. Yeah, it's it's a small fair. You can zoom around this thing quickly. They would have seen the other example. They would have gone to the gallerist. They, the gallerist is from the same country they are. They would have said, oh, that's very lovely. You know, what are you asking for that? And then they probably, I don't know, thought, well, maybe we should take ours down for the moment or wait to see what, you know, whatever. But the fact that either they didn't do that or they didn't, they did it and they just didn't care either case makes me sort of scratch my head. Well, I think there's, there's one element which, is, which isn't looked at often enough, but which is clearly a huge part of, of, of our business, but, and, and I, I'm surprised people don't think about it, is supply. Supply is a, is, a, is a huge issue in all these things. And I think it comes into, and I'll, I'll come on to the, 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 um, the transparency question. It could simply be that the, the second gallery had spent $1.8 million on that Eve client, and they needed to make that return. Um, it's, it's an argument you often have with, um, when you're talking to a client about something that comes up at auction, they say, well, this estimate's far too high. And you say, well, yes, but that's what the vendor wanted. It's their object. Um, so a lot of, it's, it's, and you can, you can run your slide rule over, the, over those asking prices as much as you like. If the vendor wanted a certain amount of money, you can't get sight of that. And you could just say that they saw you coming and thought, I'll total pay 2.2, .2, let's see what happens. <laughs> um, but, but it's, you don't so, have to take that. <laughs> um, but so supply is, is, is a huge element, and, and a lot of, 
uh, and I say, uh, at Dickinson, we, we, we wear two hats in that um, we have to take things in and we have to be thinking about what, um, what we're going to pay, what the, the consigner wants uh, when, when we set a price. Equally, when you're advising a client, you say, well, okay, so this, this perhaps is a little bit more expensive, but it's a wonderful object and it's the only one out there. So, if well, you that's wanted, a different, is, but that's a that. very, yeah. very different argument. I mean, it's one thing for um, whatever object you're discussing to more or less be, I mean, if not unique or the only one available in private hands or something, but be pretty rare. Yeah. Something that's really, and it's unlike another artist whose work you know, regularly comes up at auction or regularly comes up on the market. And if not now, in a couple of months or in six months, yeah. you know, there will be other things. You will see something at another art fair or whatever. Or the artist is still making them. Yeah, or, or, or potentially the artist is still alive. Absolutely. So, I mean, the price, as in any, I mean, Economics 101, all price is, it's not a, there's no such thing as, you know, cynical, mean-spirited pricing or, you know, super ethical you know, um, um, holy pricing. Price is simply a sign between the demand and the supply for a thing at a given moment in time. That's sure. all the price is a signifier of. Um, you can try and delineate, you know, crass, cynical yeah. price from other sorts. But at the end of the day, that's all it is. And um, In terms, the supply and demand naturally has to be taken into effect when doing that. And that's why I'm saying, why wouldn't somebody walk around a fair and <laughs> there's the supply right there and it's, you know, a million dollars less and, you know, even if they paid one eight, okay, so they, they paid one eight, yeah. they overpaid, they're going to feel a little sheepish, but I don't know why they put that out at the fair because it sort of makes yeah. them look uninformed, unaware, and... A, a bit not so sharp. Uh, it'd be better to take the thing down. And hopefully not listen to this podcast as well. Yeah, well, well but, but, I'm not naming names, I'm but, just, But you know. from the collector's side, there's a level of confidence that comes from buying from the right person they trust. Uh, I mean, I've had many dealers mm -hmm. say to me, you know, they'll, they'll be sitting in a nice room like this with uh, two pictures, mm -hmm. and the client will ask the dealer, mm -hmm. which would you buy? And the dealer thinks, I'm selling to you. I can't, well, that's the old thing. I can't buy it and sell it. You know, that's, that's the old thing. But, yeah. but people want that level of um, reassurance and trust. And one of the things that you see in the broader sense of the market is the validation of seeing something sell makes it safer. In the old master market, it's, you know, there's so much worry. If a dealer puts out their own money, the, 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 certainly the institution, but the private individual will happily pay a percentage over that, knowing that, okay, you put your money at risk. I believe it's a real thing rather than me being, you know, uh, uh, the guinea pig uh, pushed out in front. And, and that just leads me to the, the story of, I ran into a booth yesterday and they were talking, the dealer was talking about a show that they have opening up, which has a painting that just sold at auction uh, as one of the lead pictures. And they were saying how, oh, we've already sold that privately. And that was also on view at another exhibition a few months before the auction of a prominent artist, but not a huge uh, uh, active market. In fact, sort of a running market and all. And it was very clear that whoever, I mean, unless they, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, did something else there, that, they, that the buyer was more than happy to knowing that the auction had taken place, the number is easy to, to, to find and see, was happy to pay more knowing that the, the, it was in the center of the, the show, that they had staked their own money on it. So this sort of layering in of a little bit more is as much you're paying for the confidence as uh, anything else. Well, I, I, absolutely, and that, that's what I was going to say sorry, as, 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 as the last point. In, 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 in dealer terms, in, in terms of having stock, transparency obviously is very important, and with, with Artnet and all sorts of internet-based tools these days, you can see how much things have, were, were paid for at auction. Um, but there is, my, my point would be that, uh, and, and as, as Todd says, this is particularly in the old, the old master's world, as a, as a dealer you've had the confidence in the object to put your own money behind it, then you've cleaned it and done the attribution and the framing and so on, that, that you have put this thing together and you have been able to place it in a, in a scholarly context or an aesthetic context or in, in, in some other important context that, that in the wholesale environment of an auction simply wasn't possible. And, and you're demonstrating that this object is worth a, a, a significant sum of money, which you can, you can justify. And so transparency is, 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 is not so much of, a, of an issue. In fact, in, in all the things that we have here and, and, and on the stand, we, we do list all where they happen. Luckily, not so often do they happen the previous auction appearances. Well, if I'm buying something pri privately and I know that these markets are sort of going crazy and maybe it's an artist that I know there's a lot of global buyers for, so now I'm not just uh, uh, competing against other Bitcoin, I won't tell you whether I'm a billionaire or a millionaire, but other uh, cryptocurrency uh, rich pe people, but also you know re uh, people with natural resources wealth and all, or and hedge fund guys, where the the amount of wealth actually affects if we both are approaching the same object, what the price is uh, to it. Do you take that into account where, when you're advising a client of either steering them away from works that maybe, you know, there's going to be a global competition on and that may change the price register in some way? Or is it still sort of an object by object trying to find what that market is like on that particular point in time? As uh, and, and I think that's the thing, that particular point in time. So that particular piece, that particular price at that fair or at that gallery um, at that moment in time. You know, is there competition? You know, yes, potentially, you know, in the situation that you're describing. But, you know, is this the right object for you and is this the right price? If the dealer, you know, just bought it and they're, you know, tripling the price, is that the correct price, you know, for the market right now? Was the dealer smart? And, you know, we missed an opportunity at auction, or is that just ridiculous? You know, and so for that, that's where all of the research comes in. You know, what what comparable is there? How how can Will you know make sense of whatever price you know he's putting on top of an object so that we feel that we're paying the correct price right now? You know, in this moment of time, we can't predict, and I think it's crazy to predict where prices are, are necessarily going to go. I don't want to get into that with my clients and say, this is a great investment, this thing is going to be worth twice as much by the end of the year. I think that's just nuts. By the end of the year? Oh, we're, well, we're, no, but we're on Bitcoin uh, horizons I'm telling here. you, no, there, are, no there, are, there are collectors who want to see that kind of quick return. If I don't like this in a year, you know, am I going to be able to sell it and am I going to be able to make money? So, so uh, I'm going to want to, one last question before I open it up to the audience to, to, to questions, but that sort of raises another issue, which is, 
people used to collect in categories. You know, you were you were an old masters buyer. You were bought a certain artist in depth or a period and so on. And I mean, I know it's the, part of it. There's a trend towards this eclecticism for many other reasons. But I presume there's also market reasons for. Um, this kind of mixing of either you know the best of different areas and and, and fields, is that uh, is that sort of an opportunity uh, for people to start sort of thinking in terms again of connoisseurship of, of be, being owned something for the sake of uh, owning it, or is it really more of sort of being shifted away from you know that market's gotten too crazy, let's go look over here for something that that you might be uh, equally satisfied with. Good question. It, it always comes down to connoisseurship, um, and it has to begin there. Uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter if somebody has decided to be eclectic in their collecting, because they have divergent interests. You know, maybe they like they love contemporary art, but you know, going over to, over to Tefoff, they fell in love with you know some of the you know Greek and Roman and other antiquities that are there. If they have you know good guidance on how to buy those, that's you know super hard. Um, or they they love tribal art and that's you know it's coming out of their their love of abstraction. I mean whatever it is, um, but getting the right advice and specialized advice you know within those fields so that you can you know approach objects with a degree of sophistication and connoisseurship. There's not a problem with that. If it's if it's becoming sort of a, a a checklist of either diversifying your collection so that you have I have one of these, one of those, one of these, one of those, you know, that's not going to get you anywhere. If you're doing it in terms of you know diversifying an investment portfolio, I think that's another panel entirely. If we're going to be talking about you know art as an investment or an asset class, I think that becomes you know a very slippery slope. You mean because if you're trying to anticipate... If you're trying to anticipate markets, yeah. If you're trying to anticipate markets and you're, you know, overlooking, you know, let's, let's not overlook, the, you know, the, the high transaction and, and carrying costs of these objects as, as an asset, asset class. And if that's the only drive for investment, or especially if that, that motivation um, is investment-based and, and that that investment is going to return quickly, which a lot of people out there in the market are expecting, um, I think they need to dial back those expectations. Can you lead clients into new areas? Can you sort of take the interests that you know they have and be able to, from you know, your broader experience, say, if you're interested in, in this, I suggest you, you know, really sort of uh, go see a bunch of shows and do a bunch of reading on, on that because you'll, you know, there's opportunities there. There's things that you're interested in. I mean, I just, you know, one of the things about this uh, art market is there's a lot of undervalued art out there that was once uh, uh, very much in vogue and is no longer. I mean, I keep asking people in the sort of brown furniture uh, uh, business when that's going to come back because there's so many, many great objects that, there. It seems that there's just an inevitability. And as people like to say, you know, the inevitability doesn't have to come, uh, and especially in, in that market. But is, is that sort of uh, driving as advisors, as, as dealers, uh, uh, the way you want to serve clients? And is that hard to get them to follow you? 
Um, often not. I mean, as you get to know a client and their interests, you know, it is it 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 keeps them interested to move them into, you know, other areas. And when I'm moving them into another area about which I have no expertise, there's a wealth of other you know advisors out there that I can pull in, you know, and partner with that client. Um, I advise one sort of museum foundation collection, and um, you know, there are certain aspects of of American art that they, you know, just can't touch with their budget. But we are looking, you know, very actively at those other areas of American art that they don't have, um, and you know, finding opportunities there to, you know, acquire things that enrich the collection that everybody else is ignoring them. Um, but it's a different motivation, of course, because that's a museum, uh, a museum collection, not a, a personal collection. Um, so. But, I mean, it's, it, I'd encourage you, all of you to, to follow Todd on Instagram because the the range of material is. Um, is, is fascinating, but it, I'm glad we, we produced the... There are two C words. There's, there's uh, connoisseurship. I'm, I'm glad that that's come in because that is clearly a vital element to all of these things. Is um, It's, it's, a, it's a, a grand word for l knowing what you love and finding out about it. But the other one is... is the other C word is curatorial, which I think is, is a lot of what, what Todd's been up to, which I think is fascinating. How, how does that work? Uh, in terms of... Uh, in terms of guiding, uh, from, from Marion's question, how, how do you guide people into areas that they hadn't necessarily thought of? Well, <clears throat> I've always... It's been my personal experience that it's... I understand a thing, an object, in the context of something else as opposed to in its continually in its same context. So I'm less interested, although I have built collections that only sort of collect in one narrow niche, uh, period, time period, or uh, medium, let's say. And I'm much more interested in mixing and mingling time periods, mediums, styles together because I feel that they all benefit from, if, if it's thoughtfully done, I mean, not just throwing things together wildly, but if it's done in a, a thoughtful manner with a sort of a specific point of view, that being the collectors, of course, um, uh, that I, I find that the viewing experience is livelier. Uh, and um, it also broadens and assists the collector with um, continually building their, what we were referring to, you know, the, the informed opinion that's so crucial to uh, assembling um, a, a collection that, that's, that's sort of um, um, lively and, and interesting. So I was, as an example, I was just with a collector uh, here at Tafaf, and we were simultaneously looking at a, a really uh, lovely um, Rocher painting, and at the same time I was looking at a, a 2700 BC with them, Cycladic, um, Spedos, um, full, full figure that, that's over at Khan Gallery. It's, it's very small, but it's very choice. Uh, and um, not that those two objects need to go together, but the point is, is that they are willing to have a wide enough um, viewpoint to you know, engage both of those sorts of objects, I find to be extremely healthy. Now, whether they buy either or both or none, that has to do with their collection, where they think it's going, and whether this is the right thing at the right time and all that other sort of stuff we were talking about. But the fact is, is that they're at least open to something from 2700 BC and something from 1980 AD. Yeah. Um, I think, for me, is the way that I work very hard to be able to, you know, 
to, 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 yeah. to work with the clients that I am privileged to, to build collections for. Absolutely, and, and it comes down to, to the, the classic line, which, which can't be repeated often enough, is that, that collectors should only buy things that they really fall in love with. And if, if they fall in love with them because they know about it or they fall in love with them and then they find out about it is, is, is sort of irrelevant. And I, I'm interested... I would in disagree with that respectfully. I do think that this is the issue about, about the... Well, well, I mean, about the informed opinion, the whole concept of, you know, it's one thing for a client to, you know, look at the Albers over there and say, I love it, mm. which is, you know... Yeah. I, I, well, well, I like orange. I love orange, and that's going to look great above the sofa. Well, they love it for that reason. Yeah. That's nice that they love it for that reason. I'd rather they loved it, and it doesn't have to be to the level that I may know about it educationally and historically, but they can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fond of work that's, you know, more minimal and conceptual. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of Albers color studies. I've seen other ones by him. I happen to really react to this one strongly. I like the form, I, I like the balance in it, or I like the way that the colors are interacting. And um, I have some familiarity with the artist, some. I have some familiarity with the body of work by the artist, other than I, I like it because, you know, I, it's, it's orange. So loving something yeah. is good. The question, next logical question is, why do you love it? Sure. And if they love, it's not that there's a right and a wrong reason to love something that's but there are better and worse reasons certainly to love something and if their love for that object is at a very kind of I mean I know I'm being a bit severe and saying I love it because it's orange or I love it because I but obviously there's a big spectrum middle ground there but if we can kind of move from the former towards the latter that's kind of the job fundamentally of that is what I well, do that's what I was and say. why I, I mean, that's, that's the gig. Isn't that what we do? That's is the what gig. I was gonna say, yeah. you know, that, that a client might, you know, come to one of us and say, I found this thing and I love it. Yeah. And then it's our job to sort of maybe backtrack a little bit and, and mm -hmm. fill in and sometimes to talk them out of buying the thing. Right? That they love. And, and that many they times love. And I say, found... you can make a better choice. <laughs> yeah. and, and I would also add, there are things along my, my own educational career, and I had a, I had a kind of, um, uh, a, a kind of specificity of doing this that earlier on when I was doing this, if I came across an artist or an artwork or a body of work and I just didn't like it, I mean, I really reacted negatively to it, um, I would make a specific point of studying in depth that artist or that body of work or that specific work, whatever the case may, might be. And by the time I had done the process of going through that and come around full circle, I still might not like the exactly. artist or the body of work, but, but at least I could, I could articulate why as opposed to like a knee jerk, like I don't like orange. Yeah. Or many times I found it when I came around full circle, I now had an appreciation for the work that I didn't have before. Now, that appreciation could either manifest as I appreciate and understand the work now, I still don't want to be involved, or I appreciate and understand the work, and I actually would consider being involved in this now that I have more information. So um, not loving something is actually, to me, just as important as, as loving something, and that's the same process I go through now with collectors when, they, when I'm trying to get them interested. I had this recently happen with, with an artist with, with a specific client. I, specific, I, I really love his work, maybe my favorite living artist, Bruce Nauman. And this client just was like, that is the creepiest, just most uncomfortable, anxiety-producing work I've, I've ever come across. And like, I can't believe you would even think about me wanting to live with that in my house. I would have like night sweats thinking about the work. 
And fundamentally, that's what Nauman's work is about. It's about that moment when I try to describe it to people where when you're going to sleep in the, at, at night and you're, you're halfway between wakefulness and sleep, you know you're still awake, but your autonomic body is shutting down. And at that moment, you start to have a racing thought or, or, or you know, a momentary sort of anxiety-producing thought. It, it, it's a very, and it's dark in the room, and you're all alone. You know, that can be a very kind of anxiety-producing moment. Nauman lives in that zone at his best. That's what that work is, is fundamentally about. And it's very much about the human condition. And um, that's why I so love it. Um, and there's no other artist that even gets close, close to that emotional resonance in his work. And a lot of contemporary work I see today, it's, it's interesting or thoughtful or fascinating to look at, but it doesn't have a deep emotion. You don't stand in front of it and really have a visceral emotional reaction. Um, Nauman's work, yeah. many people literally have a visceral emotional reaction. And that says something. That's hitting something very human and very much at the core essence of who we are and our condition today. That's why I like the work. But it took a long time for this client to kind of get there. And even there now, they're there sort of grudgingly. <laughs> Please. But, Todd, but, but they're there. To, sorry, trying to sell me on now. No, 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 no. I get what you're trying to say. I still don't want to buy it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, but, but, but they did. <laughs> well, good. But they did. I mean, they bought a piece that was, for them, more manageable to live with in terms of, you know, the intensity level. But they did because they kind of got there and they're like, I do get this and it really is intense and I, 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 you know, I understand it, but there's certain things I just won't be able to go there. It's, it's a bridge too far. And there's other things I would actually consider. But when we began the discussion, that was like just, it's, you know. No, you know I, I so. want to pause just here if anyone has questions, if you want to raise your hand. Hi. Thank you so Sorry. Maybe we like one of those more than the other. As we know, smaller and mid-sized galleries are falling apart. And there is less and less demand for emerging artists. Do you talk about this with your collectors? Of course, you'd never advise a collector to purchase a work just because it's an emerging artist. They have to love it. They have to maybe find some way to justify it as an investment. But is this, is this something that's important to us? How do we broach the subject? Can you just address that in some way? Uh, sure. Let me just rephrase the question because we're, we're recording the, uh, this. But it's just simply within the context of discussing the health of small and mid-sized galleries and uh, younger artists and how they get their careers launched, is that part of the um, advisory uh, role? Is that Do you have some function? Can I take that? a shot at that? Yeah, please. Um, I fundamentally think that one of the jobs, there are many, to the description of what we do, but if you work uh, with collectors who are interested in youngish, younger, emerging, whatever their term is, art, one of the fundamentally boilerplate, crucial things we do is to support and to encourage the new. The new brings new, the, the new is about threading new ideas and approaches and thoughts into the culture and into the continuing sort of historical 
march of, 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 of art. And um, the new needs friends. And that's the job of critics. That's the job of advisors. And that's the job of collectors to, uh, to, to a greater or lesser extent, support and encourage the new. And for me, um, clients that I work with, there's a certain amount of, when we get to a certain amount of time we've been working together, not like in the first month, but you know, that we have, we sit down, we have a discussion about what it means to be a member of this community. And that means philanthropic. You know, the community gives a great deal to you if you've done your job well financially, and it does, it gives in many other ways as well. And it's important to give back. And that means, um, in some cases, supporting exhibitions of artists that you've purchased. And it also means in supporting the new and being aware of what's happening and the culture that's being created around you right now by people who are coming up. And it also means, I, we're not going to probably go into this deeply, but it means supporting and encouraging um, voices of artists who have been undervalued and underappreciated. Women, people of color, minorities, LGBTQ voices, a, a whole broad spectrum of voices that have largely not been heard of and are only sort of being heard in, in a significant way in, in very recent times. So that's my kind of viewpoint on that. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question, and we obviously um, largely deal with, with earlier art, but I, I've got to tell you, it's not terribly easy running a larger gallery as well. Uh, and I mean, there, there are certain economic elements that are uh, thinking about rents and insurance and all those sorts of things. It's, it's challenging to, to run any size of, of, of business in the current climate. Um, but I fundamentally believe, and perhaps I'm just an, an idiotic idealist, if the art's good enough, it'll come out. Um, I mean, I would argue that a certain amount of winnowing has, has happened over the last 500 years as a natural process anyway. Well, there is uh, something very interesting in the fact that the, one of the big um, uh, things that's under-recognized in the market the last two or three years is how much there has been a search for historical masters is the way we refer to them. Uh, but you know, either uh, older artists who have a, uh, careers are set or uh, uh, overlooked artists. I know that doesn't answer the small galleries and emerging, but it's, a, it's almost a counter trend and it's a, it's a, a bit of a, a bitter irony that the, that the value is only seen after you know, uh, uh, Freeze is doing this whole tribute to Hudson, uh, and uh, you which know, is ironic because he would never be in the damn art fair to begin with. So <laughs> that's just like the wrong place, the wrong way, the wrong. I was like, you know, that's just like an art. I'm sorry, but that's no, just no, an no. art fair trying to brand itself as being culturally. Um, current and appropriate by doing this kind of, by doing this sort of thing. And I find it, I mean, for anybody who knew Hudson, and I had the, the very, the privilege and the good fortune to have known him from his earliest days in Cincinnati, and then as he migrated to New York, and the incredible work that he did with so many younger and underappreciated um, artists of his time. He was truly a feeder gallery. Uh, Charlie Ray, Richard Pettibone, uh, Raymond, excuse me, Raymond Pettibone, um, uh, Tom Friedman. I can think of so many amazing artists he worked with over the arc of his career where he did not really, at the end of the day, financially benefit. Like, once they got to a certain level, 
they were off to a bigger gallery and he was kind of you know doing his thing but he he was such a visionary and such a special special human being in this uh, an iconoclast in the capital i best way of the word that i you know to see that in an art fair was just i mean i'm sorry it was odious to me now i know the people who were there doing that they thought it was you know to a certain extent a good idea and it's wonderful for him to have that moment so i do like that idea about it and i'm, I'm so happy that the people who were there you know but but as a it was yeah D dare i call it a dialectic that's the, yeah. the uh, uh, piece there yeah so, so, so one last anyways that, I feel like it might have been sounded unnecessarily harsh my, my point is that uh, i speak to, to to friends who are dealers in uh, English furniture or um, old masters or Victorian paintings and they'll tell you it's it's not just emerging artists who have it tough it's it's a uh, there's a, a whole um, art market uh, ecosystem that, that that is 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 challenging it's not just um, pop-up shops in Bushwick yeah I mean look, look it's yeah, but I mean, it's very hard. I mean, people, when they talk about the art market, first of all, there's many art markets, okay, and, and levels of art markets. There's sort of local markets, there's, you know, regional markets, there's a national market, there's an international market. So there's very, and, and within all those, there are all sorts of different kinds of markets. But when, you know, we talk about the art market, you know, and that I think people mean by that the the Sotheby's, Christie's, Tefaf, Fries, Art Basel, Chelsea, Upper East Side Gallery, you know, that, that's like the art market. And it's like a pyramid. It's like just this tiny little tippy, 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 tippy top of what is like a huge thing underneath. So to a certain extent, when we talk about the market, it helps to clarify a little bit kind of what we are speaking of. Because we're only talking about a, 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 the most slender, you know, slice, uh, microns thick of, 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 of the entire market. Nanos. Yes. I'm sorry, you wanted to ask? Yeah, yes. Um, first of all, thank you all for your sharing. It's uh, resonated and it uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, it is a changing landscaping and it's a global art market. And you mentioned about auctions. There are also art funds. And there are also family offices for home investment. <coughs> Consider it as an alternative investment strategy. And so, and then of course there's uh, tax and art. Investment is probably the most, the least regulated, and, and there's a lot of issues, fraud and taxations and so forth. So I wonder, with the limited amount of time, if you can share a bit about what are the traps and what are the issues, and also okay. what really. <laughs> How much time do you have? Wow. <laughs> it's 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 a massive question. Um, I mean, it's a very it's a very good question, um, but it, I'm afraid it is a massive question. Um, you know, and that's why so many other professionals, um, you know, good art attorneys and, uh, right. you know, bankers, family offices, et cetera, are, um, are getting involved in order to advise those clients who are investing, some, you know, significant amounts of money. Um, but I, I don't know that we have time to do it. it. It's, it's a challenge to get that into, yeah. into uh, sort I, of another hour's panel. I, I do want to say something that, uh, it, about that, only in the sense that I think we hear so much ab about it as it, and gives us the impression that it is a thing, you know, that there are art funds and all, all or that there, you know, there's an art loan business, when really what's being described are some services that are very, you know, 
different each time they're used. That's one of the reasons there are so many professionals involved. They're, they're quite you know, tailor-made to the uses. And also, we have this idea that the funds are forward-looking. You're going to take money, turn it into art, and then someday in the future, turn it back into money at some great rate of return. Whereas it seems much more the other way around. The, the professional community is around dealing with people who have objects that have become valuable and are now faced with addressing that. So that's the industry. There's the impression that there's this forward-looking investment industry, which really has been is more talked about than accomplished uh, in many different uh, uh, forms. And so there's a there's a kind of a confusion uh, uh, there. If you're the Rockefellers and acquired art over generations, when it comes time to sell it, there's a lot of professionals who get involved in, in selling it, and it's a big fiduciary responsibility to, to do that. But you don't go into it saying, we're going to build a collection like uh, that. Or at least I, I don't think we've seen people being successful at doing that right now. I know we've run long, so I don't want to keep uh, uh, anyone if there are any other questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com.